This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 710, and this week we welcome Tom Lobenthal of TGL Consulting. We're going to talk about asbestos and lead, past, present, and future. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, we've got afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at RestorationIndustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. at TSI.com. Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Robert Spielvogel, Brooklyn, Brookline, Massachusetts, who was first to identify molasses as the edible substance that spilled and was responsible for killing 21 people and injuring 150 more in Boston, Massachusetts, 104 years ago, and for devastating marine life in Honolulu, Hawaii in 2013. Here's today's IAQ Radio trivia question. What is the common thread shared by these celebrities? Steve McQueen, Ed Lauder, Merlin Olson, and Paul Gleason. Back to you, Joe. All right. Today, we've got Tom Lobenthal. He's the owner of TGL Consulting based in Fort Lauderdale. He's a, going on 40 years now of industry service, considered an internationally recognized subject matter within the asbestos and lead paint control industries. He served in a variety of leadership roles, including as a past national president, president of the Environmental Information Association, one of our sponsors. He currently serves as the national on the National Board of the Lead and Environmental Hazards Association, and he manages the Asbestos Professional Network page on LinkedIn, and they've got about 17,000 members. Welcome, Tom. Great to see you. Great to be here, guys. Very happy to be here. You know, Tom, I think a lot of our audience may know you better as um, the guy that did training for many years. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in the training world? Sure. Actually, in the long run, when I started in the industry, I worked with a group called Macrone. We were a microscopy company. We also did field work, but I got recruited into what we had years ago called the National Asbestos Council, which became the EIA down the road. 
And uh, I was very lucky to land their training director position back in around 1987, 88 timeframe. And I did that work for a while, then went off on my own and worked with a group called the Environmental Institute, which was part of ATC Group Services for many years. And I served on their staff for 18 years and kind of helped redevelop the training industry as we knew it from leaving the 35 millimeter slides and overheads into the PowerPoint world and uh, really trying to upgrade what people are actually learning instead of just looking at a few words on, a, on an overhead. And uh, we kind of helped move the industry a little bit forward. We had a very loyal group there for years. Um, the uh, ATC finally did sell out to uh, a bigger group and the bigger group sold off uh, the Environmental Institute. So I thought it was time for me to move into private consulting. Interesting. What's the uh, landscape like right now for asbestos and lead training? It was it was a tough I mean, for a long time, it was a, a nice uh, area to do training in. You could make a good buck at it. Then it seemed like things got really tough. How are things today? Well, it has everything to do with population centers. Uh, those, you know, the Institute, we were very lucky to be in Atlanta. So we were centralized to the Southeast. So we had people coming to us from all over the Southeast. Our refresher classes, we'd have 25 people easily every class, you know, initial classes, 20, 25 people. So we stay very busy and they still are very busy because of their location. Um, when you might have a lot of competition, it drags away from uh, the training uh, that other people may have as the industry's got a little bit smaller with commoditization and, and um, uh, companies buying things out over the, over the years. But uh, there are still people out there doing this. It's just not big operations much anymore. A lot of times you'll find very capable training organizations that may just have a person or two running it instead of an entire staff. Uh, so it has changed over the years. I would say it's not the heady days of when we were working with schools. I can assure you that. Yeah, those were heady days. All right. There were some things that went on then that I thought were a little, uh, a little greedy from, from, from some people, but uh, we yeah. can talk about that as the show goes on. Now, when we talked earlier in the week, you, you had showed me a slide of, that was called what we are not doing slide that, that you were kind of, you needed to, to develop so that when people came into your courses, they could better understand what you were doing and what you were not doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that slide? Well, actually it had to do with the renovator class that we were teaching for the lead-based paint industry. And a lot of these guys really weren't thrilled about having to take this class and be involved with uh, upgrading their services to actually deal with lead debris, waste, cleaning, that sort of thing when they did renovation work. And these guys, I think many of them thought that as a training entity, we were nothing more than an extension of, say, the EPA. So they wanted to come to class and kind of argue this stuff out. Why do we need to do all of this? And how do I price all this? So we finally had to start telling the classes, folks, we're just a training provider. We're not here to make up these rules. We're only here to teach it to them. And so with certain groups of people, that became necessity because they didn't really want to have to be there. But uh, I think a lot of times these people that come to classes think that we're all agency extensions, which we're not. We're capitalists like everybody else. You know, that RR, lead RRP rule was a thing that, that helped a lot of the training providers because you got a lot of people in, people were able to keep the doors open making making pretty good money and, and getting a lot of people in. How's that going today? Is it is it still a busy thing, do you know? It has everything to do with the state that you're in. There's only a handful of states that actually have state-designated programs where they actually run it on behalf of the EPA. 
if you have a state that's a designated program, there's enforcement and people knock on doors and people realize they have to come to class. But when you get into areas where it's not state designated uh, or there aren't training providers available, which is a really big problem for this one, uh, guys aren't getting trained and it isn't happening that way. So it has a lot to do with um, having a state designated program. And the EPA, you know, people think there's EPA people out driving the cars around in the streets. That's crazy. We haven't had that in years. Um, frankly, you wanted smaller government. This is what you got. And they don't have the people to necessarily do all of this, although they will do record search as they've done this on bigger entities. And with the RRP program, it's not just the work, it's paperwork that you have to keep as well. And that's yeah. where these contractors get, get pounded. If they do get hit by EPA is typically not the work in the field. It's their records. Now, early on, and I don't know if this is still going on or not, but, um, there was some enforcement. I think it mainly focused on the big players. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that? Well, sure, because what's happened is is that in the initial industry uh, of the what we call renovation, repair, and painting, or what we call RRP, it's an EPA program, um, the, the thing is, I don't think a lot of people, until you work with these groups, you don't realize how big they are. We're talking about the Lowe's, the Home Depots, the Sears, these larger entities uh, that do this work. They have thousands of, of, of installers and do thousands of projects every day. So the EPA did look at these big entities pretty closely and not just them. There were others as well. And what happens is they didn't have paperwork or the guys weren't getting trained and they got hammered pretty hard. And I was involved with working with Home Depot. I've helped out Lowe's as well in terms of helping them understand at that time what they needed to do. But I can assure you these days for their subcontractors, if they're working in pre-1978 houses where these rules apply, if they don't come up with the paperwork, they don't get paid. So the tune has changed in that larger entity sector. Interesting. I, you know, there's a current event going on right now and I want to, I want to kind of uh, back into it a little bit by talking a little bit about clearance um, with the RRP Clearance of a project was done by the contractor himself, as I, if I recall correctly, and they would use a wipe, and they would wipe a, what one square foot area, maybe, Tom. Yeah, well, it's 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 effectively that it's what we call cleaning verification, and what they get when they come to class is a is a card uh, that has a different different colored two different colored wipes. One is clean, and one has just a bit of dust on it. It's like a light brown color. And as long as they're lighter than that color, then they pass. It's a visual process, quite frankly. Whereas with lead abatement, it's clearance. We actually take a wipe of different surfaces. It goes to a chemistry laboratory, and there are very strict numbers uh, by which they have to meet to actually pass. It's very different than our RP. And what are the current numbers? Uh, for clearance, it's less than 10 on a floor, uh, 40 on a windowsill, and 100 in a window trough, I believe. Um, and that has already come down from early on. I recall oh God, yeah. 100 on the floor. No, it was 400 at one point. 400. Yeah. Okay. And that's what micrograms per deciliter? Micro, is that? Micrograms, micrograms per square foot. Per square foot. Okay. I'm sorry. So, okay. yeah, right now we're um, basically at, yeah, 10 and 100 um, on the floors and windowsills uh, uh, for EPA. And what they want to do is they want to drop this even lower and from uh, 10 on the floor to three micrograms per square foot on the floor, uh, 25 uh, micrograms on windowsills and 25, I'm sorry, 20 micrograms per square foot on windowsills and 25 micrograms in what we call the window troughs, which sits behind the sill. And that has been 
pretty controversial, as I understand it. They want to drop it, understandably, because, you know, they're saying there's no safe level for children in particular for lead. But it was tough enough to get down to the 10 or even the 100, if I recall correctly, back in the day. Um, can you kind of give us an idea of, of what what the industry, the people who are going to have to meet this new criteria are saying about the proposal? Oh, sure. Um, in the long run, um, there's a lot of controversy, and there's a number of reasons of controversy. It's not just the ability of a contractor to meet those small numbers. It's also the ability of the chemistry laboratories performing the analysis on these wipes to be able to actually report down to that low level. That's an entirely longer conversation. But uh, if you look at the webpage where they're putting up public comments, um, you're going to find the bigger lab entities are making this very clear. And the technique we use is called flame atomic absorption or AA. And they may have to go to more advanced techniques, which is going to really drive the price up of analytical work. But for the contractors themselves, uh, they want to know is if we go from, say, less to 10 and then down to three, does that really improve the situation in terms of less poisoned uh, children? Well, in the long run, I will tell you, through history, as that as these clearance and risk levels have gone lower, we have had less lead poisoned children. But we're now at the point where people are asking, are we really gaining a benefit from this? And then on top of it, can we actually get that number? Because if you hit a 3.1, you're done. you got to go back and reclean. And we're talking about adding $1,500 or $2,500 to a job uh, should we encounter these problems, as well as the additional cleaning. And on the floor, if I recall correctly, it's been a while, so correct me if I'm wrong, um, you would remove the lead, whatever lead contamination or paint. So there might just be dust there. There might be some paint there. You may have to remove some paint. And then you would clean it up real well, and you were allowed to seal the floor before they did the testing. Was that accurate? Well, actually, that comes out of a document we call the HUD Guidelines, which is a very large document that the Department of Housing and Urban Development puts out that is our standard working practices of how we go about doing our work. And yes, they are allowed, after we get visual inspection, um, to do sealing of floors like with wax, uh, put down floor tiles. If they have stripped wood like around windows, they can repaint. The one problem we have with it in the industry, and it isn't allowed in a lot of places because in the HUD guidelines, they leave it up to the supervisor to make that visual inspection. What we'd like to see is the inspector risk assessors have to do the visual inspection before clearance, let them do the visual inspection first, and then let them seal. Because if they could seal the floors after a good formal visual inspection by a certified individual, that was certainly going to help the industry meet this uh, three standard, I would think. Interesting. All right. Now, a large part of our audience, uh, well, uh, let me also do this. How does the blood lead level compare to clearance level? Is there, you know, we're dropping that clearance level from 400 to 100 to 10 to 3. How is there a, uh, is there a comparison between the blood lead level in the occupants, usually children we're worried about, um, and that clearance level? Well, like I said, what happens is as we've lowered them over the years, we have seen less lead poisoned children per capita, and it varies in, in states and things of that nature. But there has been a direct correlation between tightening the rules and less poisoned children. <clears throat> but the issue is, even if, say we do a couple of rooms in a house, okay, we do, we take it, say, down to three, or we do risk assessment above uh, a theoretical zero per se, 
That doesn't mean every lead hazard is cleaned up around the house. Has the soil been treated outside? If we have lead-based paint on the outside, the kids are still playing in the dirt or dragging it in the house. So the concept is we're not removing all sources. We're not dealing with all of it. We may be only required by HUD grants to maybe work in a couple rooms because of deteriorated paint. Well, we can improve those rooms, but have we increased the whole area? So kids that are around lead, there's always a couple of micrograms uh, per deciliter in their body. It's just part of the environment. So to get it down to a zero, I'm not sure that's going to happen because of the amount that we have in the environment at this time. Now, a big part of our audience um, are restoration contractors, water damage, fire, et cetera. Sure. And they run into these issues all the time. And they have, you know, their own problems about getting insurance companies to pay for asbestos oh. inspections and lead inspections. And, and all the time. It's, it's a tough time for these guys. Um, as the restoration audience, number one, it seems to me they would be a good source of work for lead inspectors and people who do lead and asbestos inspectors and people who do remediation. Do they see it that way? Some do. Um, the thing is, most of these big environmental companies, they're looking at the bigger prize. They're looking at working for the big Fortune 500 corporations. They don't always look downward in terms of where they could find other revenue sources. Some do, but what we tend to see is big companies with big companies, small companies with small companies. I have a friend that's in the Atlanta area that does lead-based paint inspections that's been doing work for RRP contractors for some time now doing testing. One other thing I want to throw in here that you may not be aware of with the renovation repair and painting program, we use we have to do test the surfaces to determine if they have lead. And 3M puts out a product called lead check swabs. They look like little crayons that have chemicals in them. You yes. rub it on the, 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 you scrape down the paint down to the base and you rub it in there and it turns red if we have lead. It's not a perfect system, but it, it works. 3M, they're just not available. 3M just isn't making them available right now. So mm -hmm. what's happened is with a lot of contractors is that because they don't have the availability of that or another product we call D-Lead, which was much more difficult to use, in my opinion, um, they're just saying lead and we're dropping $1,500, $2,500 extra on, a, on an RRP class because they don't have the lead check swabs. So I think in the long run, what we need to do is we get, need to get these inspectors to understand if the companies see it as viable revenue to come up with a deal price to get out and do some work for these RRP contractors with those XRFs to do testing like we do for lead inspections. So I think there is a market opportunity that they would be working with. Now, I've worked with a lot of restoration contractors trying to work, work with their um, – what do you call it? Uh, not underwriters, the um, insurance adjusters, uh, the adjusters, yep. the adjusters. Yep. And what I've done is I've put together fact sheets for these restoration companies that basically explains to these people, we have to do asbestos. We have to do lead. It has all the regulations on it. I've done online training for their staff to get them to understand how to explain it to these people. But most of these insurance people, remember, their job is to not pay you. So the bottom line is the more we can enable our restoration contractor community to communicate with these issues better, the better chance they're going to get uh, of being able to do the work properly and get paid for it. I think it would be nice to um, link to those documents in Cliff's blog um, if they're freely available for restoration people, because we, like I said, we've got a big audience. Let me let Cliff jump in here because I know he had a couple questions along these lines. Well, I guess the first one was, um, did, by XRF, you mean X-ray fluorescence, correct? Right. Okay. Right. So that's an expensive device. I mean, you know, you're looking at the price of a car, 
you know, for well, that's it. Yeah, they're 10, they're 12, 13, 14, up to $20,000 a piece or more. Right. So it isn't the kind of thing an RP contractor is going to buy. The right. lead inspectors, the only people that buy them are the ones who can keep them busy to pay for it. Plus, they have to re, 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 uh, recalibrate it or have it checked every so often. Or Well, the radioactive source in these things does not last forever. It lasts for a few years, and they have to be replaced, and that's thousands of dollars as well. Okay. So that's why I'm saying it's not it's not the kind of device you buy to use occasionally. Right. So that's why the lead inspectors that actually take the time to buy these devices do their best to stay busy with it just to pay for the device, if nothing else. And then what do they do? You know, I I mean, I actually have a couple of them, actually, because my wife's in the jewelry business, and we use them to uh, determine what type of metal. uh, Metal assay. Yeah, that that we have. But uh, so do they print it out? Do they just take a photograph of it? Um, No, when they do the testing inside the machines themselves, and if people haven't seen them, I'm sorry, I don't have a picture ready to put up. Imagine like a small plastic handgun. Right. And what you have is a very small radioactive source. And when they press it up against the surface, it's like a camera iris. It just opens and closes very quickly, shoots in from shoots energy out. Information comes back and there's a little LED screen on these things right. that pops up what the value is. And if we hit 1.0 milligram per centimeter squared, we have regulated lead based paint. And so what they'll do is they'll take, they'll keep track of the shots that they do. That's what we call them shots when you're actually working on the walls or surfaces of any type and they'll either keep it in the electronic part or they'll actually have forms that they kind of fill out as they go. As they go. And then for, yeah. and then formal reports get written which are required by HUD and their standard report formats that are that are given to these uh, people when they take classes. Does that um, help? Uh yeah, it 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 does. I I I guess you know a lot of you know we never know when the disaster where disasters you know, going to occur. And, and, you know, there's urban areas like you were talking about Atlanta. And as a matter of fact, you know, one of your former students sent me a private message about how great you are in the course and, 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 and so on and so forth. So your, your, your fans are out there, but what about in these rural areas? You know, what, I mean, how are you going to bring someone in in order to, uh, you know, test for asbestos or, uh, you know, test for lead? So I, I guess the question is, do you need to have uh, a government certification in order to do this? Or can, I mean, do you have to bring in a third party to do it? Or is there a way that a restoration contractor and his employees can be trained to to do their own testing? Actually, I would have to say in the last 10 years that I was with the Environmental Institute, we saw more and more and more restoration contractors send young people through to become asbestos inspectors. So they had that in their toolbox. So that way they can they can take these samples as they go. Now with lead, if you're in a, a structure that's pre-78, it's always best to assume lead unless you can test it. Uh, but again, the, the mantra when it comes to lead, the older the place, the more likely. So pre-1940, you can just about take to the bank, you're going to have lead. It's about two-thirds in between 40 and 60, and it gets smaller as you go toward 1978. So the older the joint, more likely. So the thing is, in the long run, um, if we have to uh, encounter these materials, um, I think it's best to make assumptions unless we have people that are there or your adjusters are going to allow you to bring people in because these people should know this. But that's why those fact sheets that I that I produce for people are helpful. And let's kind of go down the 
the uh, let's let's kind of summarize what they can and cannot do for asbestos. There's a federal regulation. You have to have a light. Well, you have to be uh, trained as a, trained. an inspector. And then in the states, the states, states might re- go ahead. The states right. might require licensing. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. How many states currently require licensing? If you know off the top of your head, I well, I actually don't, guy, but it's probably a majority. Okay. So for asbestos, now can a restoration contractor? test their own project for asbestos if they have the licensing and they got the training can they test their own project um the thing is where this i I have to kind of explain a little bit of history on this um what happens is in the long run i if if it's a reputable firm i don't have a problem with it personally but there are a lot of people that do because they want the inspections to stay with the inspection firms okay but the fact remains is if we have competent companies out there that are going to do this right that's fine but We've got case history with OSHA and EPA of contractors that do shoddy inspections where they will not take samples of asbestos. So they, you know, they don't find any, they take like fiberglass samples or they take whatever to make it look like they did something. Or we've even had cases where they had their hands in the pockets of laboratories and things became asbestos when they worked. So, I mean, there's a lot of case history of fraud with sampling. So this is why a lot of the states have kind of clamped down on this is that they want it with the certified firms that do that kind of work. Um, um, they have certified people, I should say, uh, licensed, if it were, for the state, at least trained uh, to do this kind of work so that we could avoid the fraud. I actually don't have a problem with a restoration contractor out in the middle of nowhere in on the coast someplace and you have to do testing and you have an ins- trained inspector. Yeah, I would rather you take the samples than have to hassle with bringing somebody in if you're truly in a remote location. But it does depend on the state and the regulations and how they re- have it written. And and the course teaches you that you need to take a certain number of samples and the location and how to determine whether that let's say thermal system insulation goes through the whole building and you can take three samples for the whole building, or if you have to go to different areas of the building, you learn all that in a course. Well, actually in the long run, um, these courses that we teach in asbestos are all based on a school's rule that we refer to as AHERA, A-H-E-R-A, which is an acronym for the statute. Okay. And it's asbestos containing materials in schools and it's schools K through 12. So when you do an inspection in a school, it's very formula how we take samples. You have to take so many samples of this. You have to take so many samples of that, which is what you're describing. Now, in the world of your that you live in, uh, this is not a, unless it's a, you know in in disaster recovery. Now you're in a different EPA regulation we call NESHAP, N E S H A P, the Asbestos NESHAP regulation. And in that regulation, basically, it's your job to find all the friable and, and non-friable. And for those that are new to this, friable are materials that we can easily crush with hand pressure. A non-friable would be like a floor tile that you can't crush with hand pressure. But you have to find every type that's there. So there isn't a specific number that you have to take. You just have to make sure you take enough samples to know what you have on site. Okay. Um Let's go to the lead side now. So we're talking about the asbestos side. They have to at least have a certification from EPA, maybe a state license. Um, And there is no uh, allowance for, let's say, like the lead RRP, where you're only going to disturb a certain amount of material. Well, I guess with NESHAP, it's less than, what, 160 and 260. Uh, But you still have to take the samples, right? Which one, for lead? 
for Nishap. I'm I'm just even well, the if point you, is you have to you have to figure out what you have. I mean, do you have 160 square feet of what we call surfacing material, which is like textured ceilings or fireproofing, or 260 linear feet of uh, pipe insulation, as an example? That's when Nishap kicks in in terms of um, regulating. It's also when you have to notify for removal. But here's the deal with all demolitions. All demolitions have to be notified. So if you're going to demolish the facility, you do have to do a notification and the survey would have to occur. Um, and we have to make sure we understand what's there. Everything from roofing materials down to flooring materials. There's a gamut of things. Um, I sent you a list that I could put up on the screen here. There's far more materials that can be in buildings than people realize. Yeah. Now, one of the things I see commonly is recommendation that because you're a restoration contractor, you're not certified or licensed to take asbestos samples, that sometimes they'll recommend you have the homeowner do that because there are no regulations on them in a residential property. Does that make sense to you, Tom? Nah, because they... I think that um, I I would hazard to guess that most of you guys that are doing restoration work have respirator trained people at the very least working with mold and things of that nature Um, to send in a homeowner with an N95, which is a simple dust mask folks that like you see, we've seen with COVID and things like that. And to take asbestos samples, that's never really recommended. Now, can they? Yes, they can, because as homeowners aren't regulated in their own homes, you always have to remember that uh, when it comes to OSHA regulations on these types of things, they regulate commerce, not private domiciles. So um, uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but maybe people do. I'll be honest with you, taking an asbestos inspector class is not that expensive, and I would highly recommend that restoration contractors get a person or two trained up to be able to do that work when they encounter those types of buildings. And the sample analysis is really inexpensive today, too, isn't it? Sure, $10 to 15? $15 a sample, something like that. Um, the only other problem with that is if you're in a very remote location, this is the fallacy that a lot of people have, they think there's an asbestos laboratory in every city. No, 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 not at all. Uh, they tend to be in larger population centers, not all, but some of them. So in the long run, the probably the biggest hassle is getting samples off to a lab. They can get them turned around pretty quickly, but it may take you a day or two to figure that out with uh, shipping samples to a laboratory. All right. I'd like to go through the same thing with lead and lead sampling. But first, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. We're at halftime point, John. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at FirstOnSite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety, interested in defining their science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, healthy workplaces, a healthier world. AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's multidisciplinary membership collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices 
through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. TramexMeters.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with Tom Lobenthal. We're going to talk a little more asbestos and lead here, but Cliff, I want to turn it over to you for a follow-up. Yeah, um, Tom, we've got a a wide range of listeners and, and many people downloaded afterwards. If you could be kind enough to walk the audience through uh, how these various asbestos samples of materials are taken. Can you just, you know, kind of describe, you know, the method uh, that's used in order to take the sample, you know, maybe sure. you know, of a sealing substance or suspected and substances? Frankly, um, every material is a little bit different. And as, as you could imagine, it's a challenge in a classroom trying to talk about everything you could possibly sample. Uh, but the thing is, what we need to do, first and foremost, respiratory protection, P100 respirator cartridges, which are the purple cartridges. Um, what we want to do is have a spray bottle that you can wet the material with. Uh, what I would do is just get you know one of the standard spray bottles and uh, maybe put just a couple of drips of Dawn detergent in there to break the surface tension. Uh, you want to wet the surface just enough so that we don't get dust when we sample. You could take a small paint scraper. And what I would do, I would suggest, is you got to have sample containers ready to go. And what a lot of people are using today, you know, the little kids' snack bags? They're about the shorty bags. Okay. Um, Not the ones with the plastic sliders. Do not use those. Use the ones with just a finger close. Okay. The plastic slider ones, we don't know whether people don't close them or they open in transit. The labs hate them. Uh, They're just the kids' snack bags. And what you could do, like, say you got a textured ceiling. What I do is I take half a piece of paper and I put it up underneath it. And what we do is we scrape the surface and imagine something about that big, maybe an inch and a half, two inches on a side. You get into that piece of paper, have your plastic bag ready. You fold the paper in half and just slide it into the plastic bag. Then you throw that paper away as, as asbestos waste. So have a bag set up for that. Close your bag. Make sure that you kind of uh, have that thing completely zip closed, wipe the bag down. The labs don't want to see the de- debris on the outside of the bag. So have some wet wipes with you and wet wipe your tools and clean your hands after every sample. Okay. Uh, pipe insulation is a little bit different. What we need to do with pipe insulation, you could use an inch and a half chisel. And what we can do is we can press into the material and kind of withdraw again into a piece of paper and then wet it a couple of times as you're going into it. So we don't want to see poof when you're sampling. And then what we get, we can transfer that into a sample container, okay? Flooring materials, if you already have broken floor tiles, just again, just think a couple, an inch and a half, two inches on a side, you could just pick a piece off the ground and throw it in a plastic bag if it's already been damaged. Uh, The best thing to do with the flooring materials, though, is if there is no mastic, the adhesive, like it's often black, but it could be different colors. You want to make sure it's either on the back or sample it separately. Because sometimes the floor tiles would be negative, but the mastic off it is. Okay. And that's the stuff that seals it down. 
And it gets complicated. There's a lot of different kind of materials, but in homes, you're going to find typically flooring materials, wallboard joint compound. Uh, the idea is with the joint compound, if you can find where the seam is, take a chisel and sample directly into the seam, get a chunk of that drywall, get it into a sample container. Don't sample it with the wallboard. Wallboards, I mean, we're talking holy grail rare to have asbestos in the wallboard. It's going to be in the joint compound, okay? Uh, I have two samples with asbestos in the wallboard, and they're both from the West Coast. Uh, I just don't think it was ever really widespread. It was out there for a couple of years, many years ago. So it's really the joint compound. We have that uh, in the basements. We can have the old forced air systems. It has the paper wrapping on ductwork. That's not uncommon. Uh, what you guys face in restoration often is multiple layers of flooring. You could have a couple layers of linoleum over the top of a couple layers of floor tiles. You got to try to sample those as best you can, each of them if you can. Sometimes when there's fires have occurred, those things are annealed together. And you might actually have to get a, an axe and a, and a hammer and kind of bang it down to break off a piece of all of that. It's ideal to have them separate, but I've talked to restoration contractors where after a fire, everything is kind of annealed together. Sometimes that's all you can do. Laboratory then has to pry all that stuff apart and figure out what you got and do expect to pay a little bit more for that. Um, we can have uh, roofing materials. Uh, it's, it would be utterly rare for shingles to have asbestos in it these days, unless it's a very old house or lots of layers that shouldn't be there. Uh, but the flashings and cements can be. Um, and again, bathrooms, kitchens, uh, wallboard joint compounds. Uh, we can also have the outside of the houses uh, that what we call transite, which is an asbestos cement that are like shingles on the outside of a house. Uh, the best thing with that is a pair of vice grips. Uh, just grab it, a corner and just kind of bust off a corner. It'll come off real easy, uh, but there's not much way you can wet it, but that's why the respirator is really necessary. Just get us again, something the size of a half a dollar would be good enough for that. Generally, it's not difficult to analyze, but those are the common things. So it's basically a set of hand tools and learning how to use the hand tools to pry, cut, and break what you need. The big issue with laboratories is don't send stuff that's too small. That's what I'm saying. I'm holding my hands up like this. They need something to work with. Okay. Gotcha. Tom, um, let's talk about lead for just a moment and the difference between RRP sampling and other types of sampling. Can you kind of go through that real quick for our audience, especially with the bent toward the restoration side of things? Actually, what you, you asked a question before. And can I share a screen real quick? Sure. So the whole point is, Guy, without taking the time to go through all of this, I'll make sure that you guys have a link that you can put in your blog and send to your other people. But it's 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 detailed. And all kinds see these questions and answers. There's a QA document for RRP and for lead. It's on the EPA webpage. And what these are is all kinds of questions and answers about emergency renovations and natural disasters. See the natural disasters? So what I would tell you to do so we don't have to take our time to go through all of this stuff is I will send this to you so your people could look at it and see what it tells them exactly. This is the policy of the EPA currently. Does that help? That's a great way to go right there, Tom. I like that. Now, when it comes to asbestos, you know, we've been removing asbestos since the probably the mid-80s now. Um and a lot of that work focused on, you know, thermal system insulation, pipe insulation, boiler insulation, et cetera. Um, surfacing materials like fireproofing and spray applied acoustical plasters, et cetera. And I was kind of under the impression a lot of that, like low hanging fruit, I call it, um, was gone. But 
you kind of, uh, I don't know that you agree. No, not even close. Um, maybe later we'll talk about a document we revised for the EPA called the Purple Book some years back. Uh, when we did that, we polled a lot of people to get an idea of what they thought removal had occurred that were been around the industry for years. Now, the emphasis was on schools. And there were some schools that removed just because they could, they could get the funding for it. There are sometimes in schools we had to do removal because we had significantly damaged materials. So a lot of that activity was in schools. Also in the industrial and commercial perspective, some of that work was done as well. But if people haven't worked in the industrial sector, uh, paper mills, power plants, refineries, there are millions of miles of insulated pipe that are still out there that are being managed every day by these people. Uh, we have no earthly idea how much fireproofing is still in buildings. Now, that was banned in 1973, but the fact is there are still a lot of those buildings around, folks. Uh, so we have no earthly idea how much of that is there. This work will continue for multiple generations, friend. Uh, we've The estimates that I got from my friends is maybe we've removed 25% of what's in the schools. And outside of schools, it's a few percent, three to four, five percent at best. So most of what was installed is still in place. I want to make sure we uh, focus for a moment on that purple book you mentioned. I think a lot of our audience doesn't know what that is or how it was developed and and how it was recently revised. Can you go down that, go over that with uh, with our audience? Sure. Uh, is that up? There it is. Yep. Okay, guys. So what happens is in the late 70s and into the early 90s, the EPA put out a bunch of guidance documents that by nature had a color to them. Okay, so we they had titles, they had numbers, but we went by the colors. There was a green book, silver book, black book, orange books, pink book. But the one that came out in 1985, we called the Purple Book. And what you're seeing on the screen is the revised version. The original Purple Book, when I was a kid in this industry, I started in 1984. Purple Book came out in 85. It was our Bible. It was everything that we knew about asbestos, OSHA, EPA. But here's the thing. Every regulation changed since that was written. Now, there's still good advice in that document in terms of work practices and things, but all the regulations changed. And the EPA people were still recommending that book, and it was like, no, 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 asbestos DSHAP changed in 90. OSHA, the, all their regulations changed in, for asbestos, but 94, 95 timeframe. So EPA came to the EIA at one point, and it basically said in so many words, you think we need to update this in like a 10-year-old, you think? Uh, and what happened is uh, we decided to put a committee together to look into working with them on that. And we uh, came up with a bunch of ideas uh, for how to proceed with that. And what we did is we put together a group of writers. Uh, we had a, an oversight group that was working with us and then eventually peer reviewers. And we wrote this whole thing. Initially, uh, we thought that might be a web page and it didn't turn out to be a web page. EPA didn't have the funding to do that. So the EIA decided we would do this as an internal publication so what we had to do is take the document and kind of rewrite it again into a paragraphical form instead of a content for a web page form. And what you see in front of you is one of the only books that you're going to find that is modern, that is going to cover everything that we know about asbestos today. Now, what this document is not, is not a guidance document for the contractors in terms of here's how you do removal. If you notice the title, this is Managing Asbestos in Buildings, a Guide for Owners and Managers. So it was written specifically for people that are managing this stuff in buildings, and it gives them all the examples of what is asbestos, and some of the most modern information about health effects, uh, how to do inspections, what types of things are done in inspections. 
what we call uh, management plan issues and, and risk type issues. Uh, then we also have a whole section on removal options. There are different kinds of things that we can do that are part of uh, what we call response actions, encapsulation, closure, removal, although we tend to do removal more than anything today. So it's a good comprehensive document. If somebody wanted to get one document to kind of read what, every, what this industry is about, this is where you would go. And that was kind of rare that a group like the Environmental Information Association would rewrite or update a an EPA document. Is that accurate to say, Tom? Oh, sure. And usually what happens is when EPA does this, they have these gigantic vendors that they work with that do these kind of things. Um, well, they came to us and we kind of had an agreement that we would work on it for them. And because uh, the work that was done initially, we were hoping they would pick it up and run with it. Uh, their funding was cut. So we just decided because we had put all this work into it, we may as well just self-publish it through the organization. And we did. And as I understand it for Brent Kynock, we sold thousands of copies of this thing at this point. That's a great story. Great story. Um, I've got a question on one of the things that I always wondered about. I don't know that I ever got a real good answer. I'm hoping you can give me one is when we're doing building demolition, we have to remove all the asbestos-containing materials, and including things like, well, you let me know if that's still the case, but okay. floor tile, the mastic, maybe some uh, adhesives, maybe some caulking in windows, et cetera. Um, what is that based on? Is there is there good evidence to show that demol- demolishing a building in place uh, with those materials in place is going to cause an exposure issue for the people doing the work, or is it maybe that those materials will leach into landfills. I never quite understood why that was required. Okay, so what happens is there's a perspective that we have to remove all asbestos. And and in some states, we actually have to, just the way the state rules are written. But the issue is with this rule we call the asbestos NESHAP, N-E-S-H-A-P, NESHAP, basically has three categories of material. RACM, regulated asbestos-containing materials, Those are the materials that need to be removed, and those are materials that are already friable, like pipe insulation, fireproofing, and the like. And those non-friable categories um, that could become friable or are in poor condition. And there's a definition for poor condition means it's broken, crumbled, a number of different terms that they use there. So what happens is, is that the thought was when NESHAP was published back in 1990, that category one materials, which are primarily roofing and flooring materials, there's also packings and gaskets, which we rarely have to deal with outside of maintenance, um, that could stay in a building as long as they're in good shape to begin with. And the technique that we use is not going to render them rackum or friable, if you will. So there are places around the country where flooring and roofing stays in place. Okay, So it's not necessarily required that we always have to remove it but it has everything to do with whether they'll create rackham. And there's a guidance document, Guidance to Normal Demolition Practices that the EPA put out years ago that specifically explains how things can become rackham during demolition activity. Like if you had floor tile that you left on a slab, you can't put a half-track vehicle over it. And they give you examples of that nature. So uh, depending on the state, you may be able to do demolition renovation uh, with leaving what we call Category 1 materials in place, the flooring and the roofing. Uh, the Category 2 materials like asbestos, cement, transite, like we have on walls and roofing, that stuff's going to get crumbled. That stuff has to come down in sheets, and it's basically a big disassembly project more than anything. Uh, but 
It depends on the state um, on this one. The biggest issue that they deal with when people do leave it in a building is they don't clean up the site. And what they find are pieces of flooring and roofing materials all over that demolition site. So what I would tell any demolition contractor, and I have for years, is if you are in a place that you could leave good condition flooring and roofing in place, make sure that you police that area. Because the EPA is now using a thing called uncontained asbestos-containing waste material which means you left it behind. And there's been many violations written on that. I've been involved in EPA actions on that on a number of occasions. Does that help? Yeah, it does. What about the disposal? Um, disposal? Uh, it could go to a C&D landfill, according to the EPA. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, uh, I would say that's probably what some people do. Some people might do the demolition and then take it off to an asbestos landfill for, for good purposes. So it just depends on how the state regulates it in that way. Uh, but uh, as an example, uh, say you're pulling up transite pipes underground, okay? Um, we old water lines. They're taking them up out of the ground right now. If you do not create a friable circumstance or what we call rackum, according to the EPA, that can go to a C&D construction demolition landfill. But here's the deal. Most C&D landfills, if they have any clue that it's asbestos, they don't want it. So that's why a lot of times this waste stream ends up going to an asbestos waste because a lot of those C&D landfills recycle materials and they have gotten into trouble recycling these asbestos cements and other things in the past. Interesting. Cliff, do you have anything you wanted to add or any questions? I got a couple more here. No, go ahead, Joe. All right. Um, I've been following recently your LinkedIn page. I just want to make sure we mention this page. Um, and I forget the name of it, but you've put up some really good examples of unusual asbestos or little-known asbestos uses. I know recently there was one on asbestos wood, which I found interesting, and then another one on asbestos um, in wiring, etc. Can you first tell our listeners a little bit about that page and then maybe show us a little bit more of uh, some of these more unusual uses? Let's see. Can you see the page? Yes, sir. Okay. So folks, this is a, a webpage specifically for on LinkedIn, uh, specifically for the practitioners that work with asbestos, inspectors, uh, the, the removal contractors, regulators, people that are interested in, in managing and dealing with asbestos. This is not a legal page, you know, for litigation. We don't deal with victim stuff here. And what this does is we've got, if you look up here, it's almost 17,000 members. I've had people tell me it's the largest webpage of its kind in the world. I would I've never taken a look to know, but that's what I've been told. And if you go down through here, you're going to see where people post things about different kinds of materials. We do things on, on regulatory issues, historical things, the human torch and the asbestos lady. It's a comic book from, I think DC comics, I believe. I never saw that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a whole series of them actually. Um, and then here's like, we got a lot of people from Europe as well. And what this is, is a picture of a mail uh, mailbox, what they call letterbox. And there's asbestos transite around the letterbox. Uh, England is just kind of getting up to speed with all this. This is a young man that was learning how to deal with boilers over in uh, Australia. I post many different historical articles uh, that really aren't in print. That's a great advantage to folks. Let me go down to a couple things. Here's one that's really odd that I thought you might want to see. You guys remember a term for early plastic products called Bakelite? Yeah. Yeah. Ever heard that term? Well, the old sure. Bakelite was loaded with asbestos. <laughs> oh. it's, a, it's a very, it's a very odd thing. 
Um, and there's different names for it, asbestos ebony. There's a number of different things, but this is just an example that I'll go down here. This is a third world country doing asbestos uh, repairs where they sand down um, asbestos and then put a seal around it, which that was posted to show people what not to do. Um, what I wanted to do is I show you this and I will send this to you so you can put it in your blog. What this is, is a, is a document we came up with years ago. Um, and it's, all the different kind of things that are common that we could find in buildings. And it's five pages of materials. And every time I've posted this and I've posted it a number of times, people jump all over because they don't get these kind of things in their inspector classes or something, but it's a really helpful thing to really help people understand the varieties of things that are out there. Uh, questions about demolitions and renovations, governmental standards. I'm trying to get down to where the wiring is underground pipes here's one that's interesting dan peters is one of our more famous guys in the industry he has a a, a page on uh, um facebook but these are fabergé they look like dandelions but it's asbestos and gold dots hmm. yeah fabergé days you you mentioned the uk and um that leads me to a question i have from our conversation earlier in the week um in general, I get the impression from you and others that in the United States, at least, asbestosis is pretty rare nowadays. Uh, lung cancer, it's kind of hard to tell where that came from. But um, mesothelioma, which is more asbestos-specific, seems to be going down. But that is not the case in other parts of the world. Can you expand on that a little for us? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, in the United States, when you take a look at a graph of uh, uh the amount of disease that's found in different countries, we're actually on the low end of it. Um, asbestosis is dropping off precipitously, and it should. Uh, the types of exposures that cause asbestosis have become very rare today because of regulations and uses of respirators. So as we lose our World War II group, which we've lost most of, and our Vietnam veteran, what I mean by that is age group of people that were exposed in those days, we're seeing scarring go down. As a matter of fact, there's more mesothelioma today than there is asbestosis. Um, with this, with mesothelioma, it is starting to go down a little bit here, but over in uh, the United Kingdom and other countries, uh, in Europe, it's, it's continuing to increase. The difference is, is the type of materials and we've been in it longer in terms of regulating in England. Uh, what they have is they have, we don't, they don't use gypsum board. They have a particle board that they use quite frankly. I don't remember the name, the name that they use for it, but it's got emicide in it. So every time a workman would would drill into this stuff, they would get exposed to this uh, amphibole asbestos, which is uh, bad for cancer risk. And in the UK, because they know this now and they're tracking this and they're trying to get on uh, on top of all this, as I told you the other day, the, the professional workman's tools now, like saws and drills and things, actually have snoots on them to attach a heap of vacuum so that when they're actually cutting into this material, they're sucking it up into a heap of vacuum and not exposing themselves. So, yes, uh, in other countries, we're seeing much higher levels of disease than we, we do here. And it has an awful lot to do with the amphiboles that are more present in those countries than what we find here. All right. Uh, thank you for Tramex, one of our newest sponsors, uh, helping us with the roundup as well here. Let, let me go. Cliff, do you have any follow-ups or any last questions? Uh, no, good. John, good. Thanks. All right. I want to ask a little bit about the future of asbestos and lead and, and what 
new things you may see coming down the road or whether or not you see this as a, obviously earlier we talked about the fact there's still a lot of it out there. Um, Are there, is it a trend toward more big companies doing this as opposed to smaller companies? Uh, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, rub off your crystal ball. Tell us what you see in the future of asbestos and lead. Well, there'll be these, like I said, they'll be working this for years. There's, you know, the number of homes with lead paint in them, is astronomical. So this isn't going away. Um, I can only hope as these companies become more commoditized and we get all these companies squished together that they still value doing work like lead-based paint work because it's underserved. Uh, We have a shortage of lead inspectors and risk assessors in this country. Um, As a matter of fact, with asbestos work, again, we don't have asbestos removal contractors in every city either. Um, so I can only hope that they continue to do this. We have regulations that are in place for asbestos. We don't need any new regulations. As a matter of fact, I think with lead, we're kind of set as well between what we have with OSHA, EPA, and the HUD guidelines. Uh, it has everything to do with enforcement, my friend. And it has everything to do with states picking this up because the EPA has kind of seen in the long run that, especially when it comes to asbestos, that most of the states, and it's at least 35 designated states, um, really are taking the the forefront on this and they've dropped back quite a bit on this. So uh, I hope the states stay involved and they did, they will, but as turnover occurs in these state programs and as funding levels change in state programs that they continue to actually do this. If they're designated EPA programs, they have to, but we can only hope that the EPA follows up on it as well. Uh, But it has to do with enforcement and it has to do with people understanding the liabilities that are involved. So the risk managers for the property owners are really the key here and that they have to realize that they have to do something with asbestos. They just can't allow their workers or their vendors to become exposed. And when it comes to lead, I want everybody to remember most of the lead work that we deal with is federally funded work like HUD funded and things like that. So it tends to be houses that are partially fed or entirely like public housing federally funded. So as long as we have hazards there, there will continue to be work there. And there is massive enforcement on this, and there is enforcement in the uh, on the lead rules all the time. And with asbestos, especially when it comes to states that have, have good programs, they hammer people pretty regularly. So enforcement is everything and keeping the rules in place that we have. Now, you mentioned enforcement is a big thing. What about um, legal liabilities? Are, are there, you know, like a restoration contractor goes in, they cut flood cuts, take out the bottom two feet of drywall. It goes over the amount that's uh, allowable through the RRP, which maybe you could mention for our audience. Um, any lawsuits coming as a result of that? You contaminated my whole house with lead or with asbestos. Uh, how do you see it on the, on the legal front? Well, no, on, on the long run, there have been massive lawsuits that have already occurred. Uh, as part of one of those gigantic vendors that got nailed in RRP, uh, there were a number of children that were lead poisoned because of the work. And there's litigation that's already been involved with that just in RRP alone. Um, we've had restorate, we've had RRP contractors, good people that have been called in to clean after an internal demolition occurred where somebody wasn't paying attention to lead and they contaminated the whole house. I can assure you the contractor that contaminated the whole house has got a tab to pay, if not a legal fee. Uh, the one thing I'm concerned about with asbestos, because we don't have any immediate health effects and we can't measure it like we do with blood levels for lead, is that too many contractors, because of this latency period between when we're exposed to when disease occurs, we tend to undervalue it. 
So maybe down the road, we'll actually see kids that were working for you today that 30 years from now might have mesothelioma or some other asbestos disease. And there would be a liability if there was no trail about training, medical monitoring, use of respirators and regulated methods. So I think the, I think the restoration contractors have to think about that. But I think this really falls back on the building owners and their risk managers is to make sure that in these bigger properties that they're making sure that this occurs properly, that not only if protect their workers that are doing the maintenance, but the people in these buildings and their vendors as well. I just want to note there's a, uh, a comment that a source of lead that is under the radar is from hunted meat. And uh, we'll include that link in the blog, Cliff, if that's okay with you. Before we go, Tom, we always like to give our, our guests the last word. Anything we missed that you'd like to add? I know I had about five or six more questions here I wanted to ask you, but we're running low on time. Number one, folks, read your regulations. That's the biggest problem. People never read regulations. When they go to classes and they see PowerPoints, they think they know all they need to know. That's not the case. If you're the person representing a, a building owner, a, you know, a client of any type, and you are in a litigation situation or an enforcement situation, and you say, I didn't know that, it's not going to go well. The biggest problem we have today with kids is going through the phones and trying to figure out something on a phone. We have to actually open regulations and read them. You can't just go by PowerPoints, folks. And that's one of our biggest problems today is getting people to read and understand things at an expert level when they promote themselves as experts. Well said, Tom Lobenthal. Thanks for joining us. My thanks to you, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our sponsors and our loyal audience. By the way, next week, we've got Josh Miller, the president of Rainbow Restoration. You're going to want to uh, check that one out. This is a, you know, from, from the bottom up kind of guy. He started at the bottom, worked his way up. He's now the president of Rainbow. So looking forward to a great show next Friday at noon when the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. 